Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We're very proud to have with us today author Robert Matson, who we spoke to a couple of years ago when he released Dutch Girl, the story of Aubrey Hepburn in World War II. And now he's come out with a sequel, and a good sequel, called Warrior. Gone almost 30 years, Audrey Hepburn remains among the most beloved movie stars of all time. Known for that face and for hits like Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and My Fair Lady. At the height of her fame at age 38, she walked away from Hollywood to raise her sons. A decade later, seeking a new direction, she came upon the organization that had saved her as a Dutch girl at the end of World War II, UNICEF. What happened next surpassed the plot twist of any movie. The introverted and reclusive Audrey Hepburn became a warrior, using her fame to capture the media's attention as she charged into the most dangerous places on earth to save children and mothers in desperate situations. For five years, she drove herself mercilessly on a quest that would ultimately kill her. She waded into war zones, met with world leaders, and called out injustice wherever she saw it. At every opportunity, she espoused causes that command headlines today. Racism, refugee populations in crisis, superpowers manipulation of the developing world, and the reckless killing of our planet. In a moment, we'll introduce Robert Matz, an author of the international best-selling Dutch Girl, as we just said. He also authored Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe, Fireball, Carol Lombard and the Mystery of Flight, and five other books as well. He's earned a reputation for exhaustive research into his subjects, while also emerging as one of the most entertaining writers in popular biography. Warriors is his second collaboration with Aubrey Hepburn's son, Luke Dotti, yielding new surprises that build on the story begun in Dutch Girl. Robert Madsen, it's great to have you with us today. Can't wait to hear about this story. Well, it's nice to be back. Tell us about your collaboration with Luke Dotti and where that has led you for the second book on Audrey Hepburn. Well, we, um, <clears throat> Luca and I met up in the Netherlands for the Dutch release of Dutch Girl uh, in September of 2019 before the uh, unpleasant COVID came around. And it was a magnificent day. And, and the idea for Warrior was really sort of hatched that day just because we had such a good time and uh, we got along so well, we wanted to do something else together. And this story, the warrior story, about his mother, who he called a badass, I mean, that was his term. He was. He said to me that got all of this really started, he said, UNICEF thought when they got my mother, they were going to get a pretty princess who would raise money at galas. And what they really got was a badass soldier. And that, I got goosebumps saying it now, every single time. And that set me off on the course because... It's a story that people just don't know about Audrey and one that I was really happy to tell. What made what made this second book, this second research, this second collaboration with Luca Dotti special for you? Luca knows everybody who knew his mother. And he was able to connect me with her best friends, uh, UNICEF people, and I, for my part, tracked down a number of people, the UNICEF people that worked with Audrey in the field. So getting to know these people and, and actually capturing a story that they all had in their heads, it's not different than really Dutch Girl and the story of Audrey in World War II. The people who lived through the war in the Netherlands, they had it all up here, but nobody had documented it. And it was very similar with uh, Audrey's 
trips to Ethiopia and especially the later missions because the early missions like Ethiopia got a lot of press coverage. Um, she captured the world's attention, but then the press, you know, they get kind of jaded. Oh, we covered Audrey in, in, you know, poverty situations. They moved on, but she kept at it. And especially she goes to Bangladesh and she did that particularly because Henry Kissinger would speak badly about Bangladesh. And so she, the warrior, went after Henry Kissinger and went to Bangladesh. Then she went to Vietnam. The U.S. still had an embargo against Vietnam in 1990. She went straight into Vietnam and talked about, we've got to get past the war. These people are suffering. They don't know anything about your embargo. They just know they don't have enough food. So that's what she did. And then in her last mission, her seventh and final major mission was to Somalia. And as many of us know, if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, Mogadishu, which is where Audrey went, was really no place for a pretty princess. Uh, it was no place for the U.S. military as the movie. You know, There was no way to win in Mogadishu. It was the Wild West, but she went there and she impressed. I talked to a number of, um, of Navy men and Marines who had been there and they couldn't believe what she did, you know, with some, a, a little UNICEF party uh, under a flag of truce, they went into places that whole platoons of Marines wouldn't go. So, I mean, it's a hell of a story that emerged that was just waiting to be told. When did Audrey leave Hollywood and why did she leave? Audrey, after making two pictures around 1967, she made one called um, Two for the Road, and then she made one called Wait Until Dark, where she played a blind girl. After that, around 1967, she divorced from her husband and she left Hollywood to raise her two sons. At that time, Sean, the older son, was about eight, and Luca wasn't born yet. Uh, Luca was born in 1970. She wanted to settle down and be just a married lady, and she did that in Rome. Um, so she came back to the screen in something called Robin and Marion in 1976, where she played Maid Marion to Sean Connery's Robin Hood. That did okay. She made a couple of other pictures, but her priority was always her sons. And so if a movie like Robin and Marion could be made in about six weeks in the summer when they were off school, okay, I'll do it. But um, that became more and more difficult. Plus, she got to an age when she hit 50. There aren't that many parts for actresses anymore. And so she stayed retired, but she was still young enough that she really felt she had a lot yet to give. But where and how? And so that's how she finally found UNICEF. For those of you, maybe the younger, younger ones in the audience, who don't uh, know who Audrey Hepburn was. She was number three on the American Film Institute's list of the greatest female stars of Hollywood. Uh, she was a slight, a slight young woman, a great dancer, not the kind of woman you would expect to see in a war zone. And from the, and from the characters that she played in the movies, you would, you would think the same thing. So this lady was an enigma, and she was extremely courageous to go into the areas where she did go in. Luca Dotti wrote this about her. When my mother talked about herself and what life taught her, Hollywood was the missing guest. Instead of naming famed Beverly Hills locations, she gave us obscure and sometimes unpronounceable Dutch ones. Red carpet collections were replaced by Second World War episodes that she was able to transform into children's tales. 
We knew we were missing the complete story of her life in the war until Robert Madsen wrote to me introducing himself and his book, Dutch Girl. I now understand why the words good and evil, love and mercy, were so fundamental in her own narrative, why she was open about certain facts, and why she kept so many others in a secluded area of her being. Thank you, Robert Madsen. What were some of the surprises for you in this second book? Um, the the fact that she was under fire so much of the time was really a surprise. When she went to Ethiopia, for example, on her very first mission, she had only been in a, a signed member of UNICEF for like a week. And the first night she spends in Ethiopia is in a hotel under siege with no running water and guards in the lobby. And that pretty much set the stage for what she did. She, she made a lot of... Uh, of air jumps in single engine planes, short takeoff and landing planes on dusty uh, airstrips. I didn't know anything about any of that. You know, the personal danger. She was in Sudan. The government of Sudan shut down the mission. They did not want Audrey Hepburn and the media poking around, you know, a dictator's regime. So she went into the, southern, the south of Sudan, she went over into Kenya, and she took a plane at night, a single engine plane, hopped over the border into the south of Sudan so she could meet with rebel leaders and see what the situation was for the, the civilians there. And when she came back and she told Luca that story, she lived in Switzerland, she came in a really nice house in Switzerland, civilized Switzerland, um, she said that she, she and her companion, Robert Wolders, her, her guy, they put on, they were given flak vests and they put on the flak vests and, and the pilot said, no, 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 you don't put the flak vest on, you sit on it, sit on it in case bullets come up through the fuselage. And, and it was the first time Luca really put two and two together and realized what his mother was getting herself into. So those kind of stories, you know, emerged as time went on, um, she would pick up AIDS babies. She would pick up um, diseased babies and not give any care. I mean, like she was there for a reason. Nothing stopped her. And that's just pretty cool, you know? And, and it was all new to me. Well, I was so eager to go. I was, I've been, you know, so privileged to be given this opportunity to do something for children. And it actually was a great relief for me because I've sat in front of television so often and been frustrated or, or seen photographs or read articles about Ethiopia and I've been so pent up with that feeling which most of us have is you can't do anything. And the idea that now I can, however little, is a great relief and I went very eagerly. How did she give a voice to the voiceless? What she did was she knew that she couldn't, she wasn't a doctor, she wasn't really a, a, a political leader. What she was was a celebrity who could bring the media with her where they wouldn't otherwise go, to Ethiopia, to Bangladesh, to the poorest places on earth. She would get the media to aim cameras in her direction and she would stand with children who were starving, mothers who were starving, their husbands dead, killed in fighting in some civil war. She always was drawn to civil war zones. Um, and in that way, she called attention 
to what these poor people, millions of people, were suffering. Hundreds of thousands in some cases, millions in other cases. They were displaced, you know, they were, she would go to refugee camps for, uh, say, Somalia, where the fighting between clans had driven out entire populations and sent them over the border into Kenya. She would go to Kenya with the media, and it, that was her finest hour, that last mission to Somalia, which happened to take place uh, four months before she died. Four months, because she was full of cancer, but she didn't let that stop her. They didn't know she was full of cancer, but she wasn't well. She knew she really shouldn't go, but she went. I tell you, the, it, it was an extraordinary trip and f filled with very mixed emotions. Many of them, of course, were, were heartbreaking. Um, but I've come back very encouraged, and I'm very optimistic, because basically, it's a country that's too poor to help itself, but it needs very little to be able to help itself because they're very hardworking, very eager to be independent, and all they ask for really is, the, is help to help themselves. We'll return to our interview with Robert Batson right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Who did you interview for this sequel? What were some of the most fascinating and informative interviews that you did? I interviewed people on really both ends of the story. I went back to the Netherlands and talked to um, some of the same people I talked to for Dutch Girl, who told me the story of when Velp, the town that she lived in in the Netherlands, was uh, liberated. The United Nations came in with a relief effort. UNRWA was what it was called at the time. Um, United Nations rehabilitation administration came in and brought food and brought clothing and that put on the radar uh, with Audrey how important it was when you're starving to get food because she had been starving so I talked to people who remembered UNRWA and remembered what the supplies were that came in and really helped tell that end of the story then I talked to people who, well, like her best friend was Doris Brinner, and that was Yule Brinner's ex-wife. And Doris is now 90 years old, uh, but they were best friends, and she's fiercely protective of, of her best friend, Audrey. Um, I spent a lot of time on the phone with her. Uh, Anna Cataldi was a journalist and friend of Audrey's who went to Somalia with her. I talked to Anna at length. I talked to Luca every Friday, basically for a year. A lot of UNICEF people I tracked down around the world, which is kind of the beauty of, of the pandemic, is that whoever I called was like, wow, let's talk, you know, because everyone was trapped together around the world. Mm -hmm. I talked to people in um, Sri Lanka, Australia, uh, Virgin Islands, I mean, all over the place. I interviewed UNICEF people, including the elusive man uh, who set up that secret mission into Sudan. I could not believe my good fortune finding him uh, to tell me exactly what happened there because it was not recorded. It was not recorded. There were no journalists along. It was just Audrey and her guy. Can you remember some parts of his interview that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, he was worried. Um, what he had to do was arrange the plane that came from Kenya across the border into the south of Sudan, including the runway. He had to negotiate with the rebels that this plane was coming in, do not shoot at it. 
He had to go so far as to make sure there were no cowls on the runway. There were no ruts on the runway because the plane was coming in at night, you know, with with smudge pots to to bring it in. It's like crazy stuff. Uh, he talked about how he set up a meeting and attended this meeting with the head of the, the rebel government. There are still some people that in South Sudan, they are still in, in the government, the ones that talk to Audrey, you know, they became legitimate guys. Um, so he talked about all that. And then he talked about the gunfire getting so heavy that after three hours on the ground, Audrey and Rob just said, we got to get out of here. You know, it, we can't, it, we just can't do any more. So they got out. But the, the point was, they went, they made it, and I found the guy who knew about it, and and I amazing. have that story. That's amazing. Why did a close friend of Audrey say that Uni it was UNICEF that killed her? That was a direct result of Somalia. She went to Somalia uh, to places that really she should not have gone to because the scope of the disaster the scope of the suffering and the death was too much. It was too much for her. It broke her spirit. She had been able to keep her sense of humor and keep her drive through all of these missions. But when she came back from Somalia, she talked about, I can't sleep. I'm crying all the time. Both of her sons realized something was seriously wrong, that Somalia had broken her. And in particular, she went to the, the city of Baidoa, which was the epicenter of the of their um, of their suffering, and after that, that was near the end of her trip. After that, she was no longer really Audrey Hepburn, and uh, and everybody in her family and her friends knew it. We'll return to our interview with Robert Matson, but after these sponsor messages. And now back to our interview. Your introduction in the book was powerful when you wrote, when I told the combat veterans about her experiences in World War II, surviving strafing by British fighters, artillery fire from both sides, and missions for the Dutch resistance, ah, then her nonchalance at bursts of machine gun fire in Mogadishu made sense. You wrote in your book's introduction, I thought that was great. Well, I tell you, those men, um, they were the very first that I talked to. When I started the, the, the story, at the end, I wanted to find my voice because you always have to find your voice on these things. And I wanted to get that. And Somalia was the most interesting part of the story to me. So I started there and I, I, I tracked down the one, um, the captain of the USS Tarawa, which she went out to visit. Uh, he put me in touch. And finally, I talked to four of these officers, including Mike Hagee, who was the commandant of the Marine Corps at one point. Um, and yeah, they they remember her so fondly. As soon as you say to so many people, including military men, I want to talk about Audrey Hepburn, boom, you're in. You know, it's like open sesame. And then they want to talk to you, especially if they met her. And the captain of the ship got a kiss on the cheek from her. And it was like the highlight of his life. I have a photo of it in, in Warrior. So, um, so yeah, these hardened military men, including Colonel Mike Hagee, who was the one on the ground dealing with a deed in Mogadishu at the airport, which had been blown to bits, he met Audrey Hepburn and said, well, you really should. They, Audrey wanted to go out and thank the, the Navy boys and the Marines for being there and supporting the cause. And he said, well, we really shouldn't do that, but let's do it. And so she flew out there 
And it was really the highlight, the one bright spot of the entire trip was, you know, seeing the military power, uh, having a, a drink, you know, she liked bourbon. She got to have a shot of bourbon. She got to take a shower. She got to rest a little bit and then it headed straight back into the war zone. But yeah, um, the, the guys were great. They loved talking about her. They loved talking to me and, and it was a thrill. Another great piece from your book. In 1995, two years after Audrey's passing, Sophia Loren wrote that Audrey was meek, gentle, and ethereal. I now take umbrage at the very idea that this lion-hearted woman, this warrior, was in any way meek, he continues. She could be, at any given moment, wise, funny, engaged, determined, reflective, sad, evasive, playful, childlike, doting, fussy, or committed, but meek? Audrey Hepburn took a night flight in a single-engine plane into the war zone of southern Sudan, sitting on a flak vest in case stray bullets came up through the fuselage, which you had mentioned before and how true. Amazing, amazing woman. It's true. You know, it's it's quite true. She was one of a kind. And um, a lot of people, even younger people, know Audrey Hepburn because she has somehow, you know, who the heck remembers Clark Gable or Vivian Lee or you know, name the star, June Allison, or what, you know, if you ask anyone under 40, they have no idea who you're talking about, and their <laughs> eyes glaze over, but if you say Audrey Hepburn, she's been gone 30 years almost, and people, women especially, but people know that name, and I think part of why they know the name is not only her pictures, but what she did in the last five years, it just seeped into the public consciousness, you know, what she did, uh, that she was almost a Mother Teresa, although she would take umbrage at that. She did not like to be called a saint or anything like that. She was a, a real person, down-to-earth person. Um, but I think she is remembered as much for her courage and her humanitarianism as for her motion pictures, as great as they are. If you could have five minutes with her today, what would you ask her? Oh, I'd want to talk about the war. <laughs> you know, I'd want to talk about World War II. I'd want, to, uh, I'd want to talk about all the places I've visited. I'd like to talk about her memories of the historical events that, um, that I have bits and pieces of from her. But I would like to talk about Operation Market Garden. I want to talk about the Battle of Arnhem. Um, I want to talk about the Hunger Winter and the V-1 uh, rockets that fly, you know, misfiring and coming down on Velp, friends and neighbors killed. I'd want to talk about Uncle Otto, the, her uncle who was shot by the Nazis, and she would never talk about him. That would be a very quick conversation. If I remember correctly from our earlier interview, you actually visited a German pillbox in Belgium? It was a German flight center. I did visit various um, you know, German gun emplacements and whatever, but Right near where Audrey lived in Velp, there was the Dalen Air Base and the uh, and and this very sophisticated command bunker that is still there because it can never be destroyed because it's like you know concrete fifteen feet thick. It's a magnificent building. It was called Diogenes. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I was I was in there. Um, I wanted to really get the lay of the land as much as I could, and I had some fantastic Dutch guides and. Dutch friends. We made so many friends there. Um, we got to go 
through Diogenes. They tried to blow it up from inside, so some of it was destroyed at the end of the war. Um, but you know, it will be there forever. The, I the Dutch were very supportive of the U.S. Uh, in World War II. Are they still that way today? Were they easy to work with? Uh, yeah, the Dutch are kind of a funny people. You know, they they don't take to foreigners as a rule. But I had one of these sweet little old ladies who had gone through the war. She, she called me one of the liberators. You're our liberators, you know, because I'm American. Um, and boy, that that sort of makes you freeze because, you know, I was not <laughs> I was not under fire uh, trying to liberate any of these towns. But they remember the war and they do appreciate all efforts to tell their story and 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 see that they are recognized for what they went through and what they persevered through. So, yeah, you know, I, I and and they like me. You know, um, we all got close, and um, and I can't wait to go back. I, I was just talking to one of them today. I can't wait to get back to Velp and Arnhem. Yeah, we covered Operation March, Market Garden in a two-episode show that we did here at 1001 Heroes, and that was an amazing, amazing story. I, I actually, the person who took me uh, around Osterbeck, Arnhem, and Velp was the technical advisor who worked with yeah. Richard Attenborough uh, on, on the production. And, and so just to get the inside story on the making of that picture, you know, cause he would say, my friend Robert would say, no, 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 that's not historically accurate. And Richard Attenborough would say, we're making a movie. This is Hollywood, you know? And so there you shut him <laughs> down. But uh, you know, I, thanks to Robert, I'm sure it's more accurate than it would have been other. But Attenborough, Attenborough well, did yeah, a pretty good job with that movie I um I'm always mindful of that when I wrote mission about Jimmy Stewart and I was going to ask you to elaborate on that a little bit too that that is a fascinating book if you could share a little bit about that I'd appreciate it after I had written this book fireball about Carol Lombard's plane crash uh, a friend of mine suggested I do Jimmy Stewart in the war which I really was reluctant to do because Stewart was notorious for not talking about the war he would not share any experiences in combat period for his lifetime, period. But I was able to go in a different way and access the combat mission reports of his bomb group and and understand all about the 20 missions he flew from bomber bases in England into France and Germany and, uh, and tell that story. I talked to survivors, you know, um, people who flew with him and I talked to his daughter, and I, then this story emerged. And the, to tie it back to what I was saying before, it is terrifying how much everyone knows about the 8th Air Force. You know, how much these buffs, these armchair generals know about the 8th Air Force, about uh, B-24 Liberators, which is what Jim flew, about B-17s, which is what he trained on, about the bomb groups and the squadrons, uh, about the fighters that protected them. And so, boy, you know, you want to talk about intimidating, try to write a book about World War II these days. Um, but it's held up really well. If you look at the um, the Amazon rankings and, the and you know, it's got four point whatever stars. And I don't, I can't remember it being dinged for inaccuracies. And that's a big relief. 
A lot of people love Jimmy Stewart. He just left such a good reputation. From what I understand, well, from what we, we know, he was a he was a big star before he left for World War II. He didn't have to go in, but he volunteered to go. Air Force took him. And when he came back after those bombing missions, uh, when the war ended, he had a form of PTSD, had to be had to be really coerced to get back into acting because they wanted him back on film. He said, yes, you might remember what the first project or movie that he did was. I'm not sure if I know it might have been It's a Wonderful Life, but I'm not sure on that. Yeah, it was. That was the only offer that he had right coming back to Hollywood was It's a Wonderful Life. And if you look at that, I've been, you know, people want to know about that as much as anything else in my writing career, you know, Jim's state of mind when he comes back and makes It's a Wonderful Life. And the nice thing is it's it's a film that is seared in all of our brains. So when I say, think about the scene when he breaks up his living room and he throws models into the Christmas tree and he terrifies his wife and his kids and they're looking at this maniac, you know, this raving maniac mm -hmm. who's like a complete stranger. There, bingo, that's Jim. That's the Jim that came back from the war that had rages, that had shakes, that had night sweats, that couldn't sleep, he had nightmares. And they went on and on. It's not like he just got over it. But what he did was, what he realized making It's a Wonderful Life was he could channel some of what he was feeling inside into his characters, you know, and give them depth that he certainly never had before the war. He was a fine actor, but he was an actor. This is a man who went over into Europe and he lived this hell you know, nightmares, leading formations of bombers and and being responsible for men who died. You know, it's just, it's so much. No wonder he never talked about it, you know, because of what he had seen, what he had endured. He was a perfectionist and self-critical to a fault, an absolute fault. I could have done this better. I could have done that better. So he couldn't talk about that either. And that's another reason, you know. Um, he couldn't talk about missions because he felt like he made mistakes. Damn it, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Um, so what a complicated man uh, to try to unlock. Uh, an introvert, but also a closed-off person um, that I attest, I think two people in the world knew him. Two. One was his wife, and the other was Henry Fonda, his best friend. And people thought they knew him. They thought they knew Jimmy, but... To, to his wife and his best friend, he was Jim. He wasn't Jimmy. Jim was a real flesh and blood person um, with a temper, uh, very smart man. Jimmy was this person you saw in The Tonight Show. You know, he was a, he was a cartoon. So anyway, it's, uh, that was quite a story to tell. The closest too. story, the closest I got to a Jimmy Stewart story here at 1001 Heroes was I, got, I had the opportunity to interview, I, forgive me for not remembering her first name, her last name is Grimes, and she played the little girl that he was holding in the last scene. Yeah, and she was a little girl. I'm not sure that she really could. Um, she claims a lot of these things that are said about him and his PTSD were just not true because, you know, he was fine, he was nice, he was wonderful, he was warm, he was sweet, he was funny. But... When you're seven or whatever she was, you know, I'm not sure you pick up on, uh, ooh, you know, uh, Donna Reed was terrified <laughs> of, of yes. Capra, the director, Frank Capra, had just come back from serving in the war. Stewart had just come back. 
and both of them were just like on complete edge. It's like, oh my God, you know, this is my last shot. What happens if this it tanks? What if we bomb? You know, we're, they were saying both were washed up, and and Donna Reed would report that they would go off and they would talk about a scene. Maybe we should do it this way. No, maybe we should do it that way. Um, so it was, you know, pretty tense for the adults, even if the kids just had a good time. What did you find fascinating about Carol Lombard? Well, she, this is another really courageous person in her, in a different way. You know, she didn't go into war zones, but uh, she um, was ahead of her time. You know, she was a, a contemporary woman of, you could say, 2000, 2010, 2020, um, believed in equality of the sexes, uh, believed in paying your taxes, believed in helping people who were down and out, uh, and did it over and over again. Um, Lucille Ball was one that she got her career, helped to get her career started. Alice Marble was a, a Wimbledon champion tennis player who only got to Wimbledon and won it because Carol had helped to sponsor her. Um, over and over again, you hear these, these stories of the wonderful things she did, and, and the way she died was emblematic of the way she had lived, which is charge, charge ahead. She was the first woman to go off and sell war bonds out of Hollywood. She went to Indiana to sell war bonds. She died on the way home in a plane crash near Vegas. So much to admire about her, you know, and, and I've, I've been very lucky. Maybe it's because I, I tend, I wrote about Errol Flynn. One of my first books was about Errol Flynn. And, and he's, you know, he wasn't a good guy, really. Let's just call a spade a spade. And after a while, it just, it gets, it gets you down. So I think maybe it was unconscious. I started to pick people who were, you know, pretty, pretty cool. And um, so it was Carol, and then it was Jim, and then it was Audrey, and then it was Audrey again. Writing a biography is no easy task. And you've got to constantly talk to people that knew the person that you're digging into and connect with them. And it would seem to me to be a lot easier if the person you're digging into is somebody you really admired. Uh, because that's going to come through to the people you're talking to, and those doors are going to open. Do you find that true? Yeah, I think it's very true. Um, you have to understand the person that you're dealing with. Like Jim, you know. You have to understand where he came from. I grew up in a small southwestern Pennsylvania town, very much like the town he grew up in. Um, I grew up in California, Pennsylvania. He grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania. They were little college towns, mining towns, you know, agrarian towns. Um, so I knew that part of him. He's an introvert. I'm an introvert. Ooh, you know. So you have to understand. You have to get to understand these people. Um, and, and it is much easier if you like the person. Um, my friend Scott Iman, who is a, a, another biographer, he said, you know, um, he, he said that may, writing a book about John Ford, the director, was like, you know, being, in a, being locked in a phone booth with a maniac for two years. And I've, I certainly understood what he was talking about, you know, because that was sort of my experience with Errol Flynn. He's just, you know kind of a mean, a mean drunk. That was his problem, was he was a mean drunk. The problem, the extra problem was he was always drunk. <laughs> um, but um, like Audrey was very... He was a Marine, or he was he was with the Marines, I think. He was a, a photography expert with the Marines. He was on Wake Island when the Japanese Ford, attacked yes. Him. Uh, Ford. Ford. Was, yes, Ford was, was one of those directors who, you know, went and, and served and went, yeah, he was at Wake. Yeah. 
He was rough on John Wayne too in a lot of those everybody. films, from what I understand. I know every actor Wayne took a lot of suffered at the hands of John. Ford. If you if you um if you had somebody in your radar to do right now, who would you most want to do? I was thinking of of doing Olivia de Havilland because she just passed, uh, and she's never been done, and she's quite uh quite a character because she made Gone with the Wind. And because she was the one that broke the studio system, she went head to head with Jack Warner at Warner Brothers. She sued him. And when she won that lawsuit in 1944, it changed the way Hollywood did business. You know, it, it broke Hollywood star system, as they called it. But I've sort of cooled on that idea because I, I think I'm being pulled toward the war, back toward the war, you know, back toward Germany. Um, trying to find a story I can tell about the war. Robert Madsen, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing your story with us. I know a lot of people are going to want to pick up Warrior by Robert Madsen. Fantastic book and a great job and a, and a wonderful tale about Audrey Hepburn's later life. Thank you for your work on that. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Invite me back sometime. Talk to you again soon. Stay in touch. I guess there is a real uh, sort of dichotomy between the fact that she was so well known and uh, that she became ill from a disease that only touches one in, in a million people. We usually use those words rare, one in a million, to describe something valuable, extraordinary. And she was. But I do believe that um, with time, people will remember <clears throat> her elegance and associate it with the way uh, she accepted her illness. I can tell you without uh, any uncertainty that, that the way she handled it was truly extraordinary and, um, and beautiful as a person.